All right, we're going to look at Revelation 16 of this morning. And I'm going to confess, it kind of ate my lunch. I'm not sure why. It's no more nor less tricky than any of the other passages, but for some reason, it kind of got in my head. So we'll just do the best that we can. Just a reminder, chapter 15 and 16 are really one unit. The chapter break's not super helpful. Uh, we said that we've been living in the last days since Acts chapter 2. Chapter 15 of Revelation signals that we're kind of in the last couple of minutes before Jesus' return. So uh, just like last week, I'm going to read chapter 15 and chapter 16 together to provide context, but we'll just look at chapter 16 in a little bit more detail. So starting in chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen, and they wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you're just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and now the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle in the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. 
Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on the people. Or fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. So we said last week that chapter 15 provides a context for chapter 16. Again, they're to be read together as a unit, kind of the overarching umbrella is this idea. It's the seven plagues of God's wrath. With these plagues, we read that the, the wrath of God will be complete. And we saw that the end of that last plague, that phrase, you know, it's finished or it's done, it, it's done. And so whatever it is that God was doing is over with the seventh bowl. So uh, just by way of disclaimer, we're not going to get into the weeds on what each one of these plagues means, mostly because I don't know and I don't know anybody else who does. Uh, we said before, Revelation is a vision. It's 100% true, but it's not literal. And we wind up, we can easily get lost in the weeds if we're trying to discern every single detail in these visions. And we, we, we actually, it's not just foolish, because again, I don't, I haven't seen, heard, read anything that makes me think anybody has any idea what these plagues are actually going to be. We can't even figure out some of the simple things. Armageddon is a place. It means Mount Megiddo. Megiddo and Megiddo, is, it's a city. Like we talk, it's talked about in the Old Testament. But the issue is there's no mountain there. The, the, the highest hill is 70 feet tall. So even something that seems like it would be plain is not plain. And so again, to spend a bunch of time trying to dissect each vision, we're going to wind up, it's not just foolish to me, it causes us to miss the greater truth that God is trying to communicate through chapter 15 and chapter 16. So what we're going to try to do is take a macro view. Hopefully I don't muddy the waters too much for you, but that's the approach that we're going to take, kind of a broad 30,000 foot view on chapters 15 and chapter 16. Uh, one of the things for me that can be helpful, Revelation, the visions, it's easy for me to get lost um, in the details and the imagery. Uh, the statements, yeah, I'll call them heavenly declarations, the things that these angels are saying, or the, the, the worship songs, the hymns that are being sung. To me, those are handholds to help us understand what's going on. Again, it's really easy to get lost in the imagery of the, the, the visions, of the pictures, and those statements. Again, we'll, I'll, I'll just call them heavenly declarations because that's where they're all coming from. It's either an angelic being or it's people in heaven that are talking, those provide handholds to understand what actually is happening. What's the truth that God is trying to communicate through these visions? And so for me, then that means uh, chapter 16 verses 5 and 6 and 7 become really important. You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, why? Because you've shed the blood. Because these people have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, as they deserve. And then I heard the altar respond, "Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments." And that also it's almost an, an exact parallel to chapter fifteen, verses three and four. This will be on your on the screen. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. 
Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. So when I, when I look at what those, uh, the redeemed are singing, so remember that group gathered around the sea, those are people who were victorious over the beast. Chapter 13, we read that everyone who doesn't worship the beast is killed. So these guys are martyrs, and this is the song that they're singing in chapter 15. And then we see that same song, or the same themes at least, being declared by an angel in chapter 16. And the two words that jump out to me are holiness and justice. Holiness and justice. We can, th- those are huge concepts in the Bible. And again, we could get lost kind of plumbing the depths of those. So we're just going to, again, the, the, kind of the, the highest level summary, God's holiness is his moral perfection. It's his sinlessness. And God's justice, it's his righteousness, which is a characteristic of who he is. It's his righteousness applied to the earth. So when you think about justice, that's people getting what they deserve and God determining kind of the what they deserve. So that's what it means for God to be just. It means he gives people what they deserve. It's his righteousness being expressed in the way that he deals with people. And you see both of those themes in these two heavenly declarations. God is called the Holy One and what he's doing is described as just and righteous. And that you see that so to me, when I read that, then that, makes, that gives some context for these plagues, which are honestly kind of disturbing to read. Uh, when we read those seven plagues and we're kind of trying to put that together, we're thinking of people that we know maybe who don't know the Lord, and we're thinking, is that, is that, what's, in, is that what's in store for them? And, and how does the God who does Revelation 16, also this Palm Sunday, send his son into Jerusalem to die on our behalf? And it can be hard to reconcile all of those things. And again, holiness and justice, that's the context. So those plagues are called the bowls of God's wrath. When I think of a bowl, it holds things. And one of the things that we read in Romans 2 is that God's wrath is being stored up. He is withholding his wrath for now, and it will be poured out in the future. Chapter 16 is the pouring out of that wrath. God's wrath is his righteous anger directed towards sin. And right now that righteous anger is, we'll just call it being collected for lack of a, it's not a great word, but that's what we'll say. It's being collected in these bowls. And then at just the right time, that righteous anger is going to be poured out. And that righteous anger is motivated both by God's holiness and by his justice. When I think of holiness as sinless perfection, there's more to holiness than that. But when I think of it as sinless perfection, I think of a fire. And just like anything flammable is consumed by a fire, so anything sinful is consumed by God's holy presence. And so uh, we've said that part of what God is doing in Revelation, this disclosure, it's a revealing of his, his plan to establish his kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. And, and one step of that then is he's got to have a people who are holy or else nobody can be in his presence. And that's the gospel message. Jesus died to make us holy. And, and another step or another stage of that is God cleansing the earth of everything that's not holy. He's getting rid of everything that would resist or reject or rebel. Those things can't be in his presence. Again, just like they'll be consumed, just like anything flammable is consumed 
when it's thrown into a fire. And so his wrath, his righteous anger poured out towards sin, it's motivated by his holiness, this sinless perfection that can't even be in the presence of sin, or, or I would say sin can't be in the presence of him. It's burned up by his holiness. Chapter 16 is an expression of that. But I would say maybe even more fundamentally what we see in chapter 16 is God's wrath is an expression of his justice. That's what that angel says. These guys are getting what they deserved. They killed your people, and so now you're killing them. They're drinking blood because they shed the blood of your people. Way back in chapter 6, the fifth seal, they're martyrs under the altar. And what they say is, how long, O Lord, until you're going to avenge us? And chapter 16 is the answer. And notice it says, I heard the altar respond. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. It doesn't say specifically, but I wonder, is that altar, is it those souls that are under the altar that we read about in chapter 6, the fifth seal? Are those the same? Is that the altar that's now saying, yes, you're finally avenging us. You're finally giving justice, doing justice on our behalf, giving these guys who persecuted us and who killed us what they deserve. Again, that, that to me is it's an expression, God's wrath is an expression of his justice. I see that maybe even, I don't want to say more so, but it seems to, to lean that way a bit in chapter 16, that what we're reading is God paying back these people who have the mark of the beast. It's not this, it's not this idea that they're these guys who are maybe ignorant of who Jesus is or Maybe they, they've never really understood the gospel. They're, they're basically good guys that just don't know Jesus. That's sometimes how we think of people who aren't Christians. You don't see that in Revelation, particularly as we get to later chapters. The line is really, really stark. People who are resistant to God become not just resistant to God, but they actually become almost employed by the dragon, doing the bidding of Satan, in this case, killing God's people. And then God judges them for that. In chapter 16, he vindicates or does the, the martyrs, and it's justice both ways. It's justice for the martyrs, and it's justice for those who killed them. And that's kind of messy for us. We don't necessarily think that way, but I think that's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 16. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Chameleons can see that their eyes work independent of each other, so they can kind of have two different fields of vision or, or two different things they're focusing on at the same time. And when we read Revelation, it, it would be helpful if we could do the same thing. There's kind of this near-term fulfillment to Revelation, and there's a, a farther fulfillment. There's, there's something, for me, maybe even more so than seeing it in terms of time, is there's a local fulfillment in Revelation and then more of a global or a universal. And in the West, because we've never been persecuted, we tend to push all of Revelation into the far-flung, distant future. None of it really impacts us, and so we can spend time trying to figure out who the kings of the East are because our life is really pretty easy and our Christianity is pretty comfortable. We can try to figure out what 666 means because nobody's breathing down our neck for being Christians. It almost becomes this abstract, theoretical book for us because we don't live under the pressure that there are other people in other times and in other places do for following Jesus. And, there, and there's some of that is true. Jesus is only going to come back once, and it's not going to be 
tomorrow. When I think about timelines for Revelation, it makes me really nervous. But the one stake I'm willing to put in the ground is Jesus said, until the gospel's preached to all nations, the end won't come. And according to the guys who are studying it, we're not close to that yet. So Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow. He's not coming back in 2020. There's too much work to be done in terms of making disciples of all nations. So I do think, yeah, there's a part in which we can take Revelation and we can project it into the future, particularly when we're looking at these big, these global universals, Jesus returning, Satan being you know, thrown into the lake of fire, the final judgment, those types of events. But I also think there's a part of Revelation that's, that's really applicable, particularly for people who are being persecuted now. And for 2,000 years, there have been pockets of the church that have really been squeezed. In a sense, I would say they're, quote, deeper into Revelation than we are. When we read it, we tend to kind of hang out in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and maybe 4 and 5. But once it gets past maybe a few of the seals being opened, it really quickly becomes disconnected from our lives. But there are people for whom that's not the case. There are Christians right now, there are pockets of the church right now who would say, I'm living, I'm living under the beast. Maybe it's not the final version of the beast, but I'm living under the beast right now. The government that I live under is actively suppressing the church, actively hunting down Christians, actively throwing us in jail, and even killing us if we're not willing to recant our testimony, if we're not willing to walk away from Jesus. We're living deep in Revelation. This idea in chapter 16 of people getting what we deserve, when we think of people who are lost again, I think for most of us, we love people who don't know the Lord, and we don't see them this way at all. They're, They're not persecuting Christians. They're not hateful towards the church at all. But again, there are pockets of the church throughout history and in our current day where that is reality, where there are people who are actively seeking to persecute the church and actively kill believers. And they would say, the line that I see in Revelation, I'm living that. Everybody's on one side or the other. There is no gray. There's no fence for anybody to sit on. Everybody's either sealed by God or marked by the beast. And I think just because we live in the comfortable West, again, it's easy for us to to, to project out and say that, and I would honestly say it's probably true. We don't live in the conditions around which Revelation 16 apply to us yet. It's not where we are in a local context, and I would say it's not necessarily where we are globally. I do think there are believers who are living there right now. I think there are believers who, because of the situation that they're in, again, they're, I would say, maybe kind of, quote, deeper into Revelation than we are, and they would understand this chapter in a way that's very difficult for us to get our minds around because we can't put, fa- we can't put faces to any of it. We can't put faces to people who we would say, absolutely, let them drink blood, because of the evil that they're doing to the church. But there are Christians right now all around the world who they can put faces to those descriptions because of the way that they're being treated. So again, it's kind of that, we we wanna look at the the local fulfillment and we'll call it the global fulfillment. And we want it for us, again, as as Christians in the comfortable West, I think what we wanna say is the, the message of Revelation is the same even if we would say, we're not quite that, I'm just going to use that phrase, we're not quite that deep into it yet as a church in America. The, the word to us is to be faithful witnesses. 
If you think back to those seven churches that are mentioned in chapter two and three, they're all in the same general geographic area, but they're experiencing much different circumstances. Several of them are are being squeezed pretty hard. Uh, Several of them seem to be uh, honestly pretty lax in their faith. They seem just to be kind of rich and fat and happy and comfortable. But the word to each of them is the same. The responsibility, the word, be a faithful witness, regardless of the circumstances, be a faithful witness. And that's what Revelation would say to us, even if chapter 16 feels foreign or far distant future. What John would say to us, what Jesus would say to us through John, be a faithful witness. And if at some point, if we're alive, when these circumstances become more more relevant, more present in the comfortable West, the word to us will still be the same. Be faithful witnesses. That's what's going to That's what God's looking for from us, and that's what he's going to use to turn others towards him. One other thought, again, this may seem uh, not where you're sitting. I think one thing that that for me when I read Revelation that can get really tricky is what's the connection between seals and trumpets and bowls? Are there 21 judgments? Are there 14? Are they seven? Like, How do all these major moves fit together? I I don't honestly have a great answer to that. It feels pretty fluid to me. You'll see on your screen... The, the connections between the trumpets and the bowls. And so I'm just toss this out, here, out there for you to chew on. I'm wondering, and you can see the, the similarities and maybe where I'm coming from, the parallels between the trumpets and the bowls, the, the first four trumpets, land, ocean, fresh water, sun, the first four bowls, same land, ocean, fresh water, sun, different but impact the same natural uh, sphere, the fifth, both of the, the results of the fifth trumpet and the fifth bowl is agony. Um, the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl both have some version of an army coming from the direction of the Euphrates River uh, towards uh, God's people. So I, I, there, there are parallels there. And you'll also see on that slide, there's some connections back to the Exodus, which I actually think one of the best ways to understand Revelation is to read Exodus. I think what you see in Exodus is a, it's, it's the clearest historical example that we have to what Revelation looks like. And it's just Revelation, again, there's, there's local fulfillment of Revelation. I also think there's a global fulfillment uh, when Jesus returns. And, and Exodus is an example maybe of kind of that local fulfillment. What does it look like on the ground for Christians who are actively being persecuted? So, so, so anyway, to me, the trumpets and the, and the bowls, they're, they're so similar I actually wonder if they're the same, if they're the same judgments, maybe looked at from two different perspectives, or maybe even this, maybe trumpets become bowls if people don't repent. So remember we said the trumpets were warning judgments, but the last verse in chapter nine says nobody repented. They continued to worship Satan and they continued to engage in sinful behavior. And then we see these bowls three different times. People refuse to repent, and then they go even one step further, and they curse God. That word is blasphemy. That's intentionally defaming, demeaning, slandering God's character. That's a step beyond not repenting to me. That's just not, I'm not going to repent. That's, I'm not repenting, and I'm actively defaming you. And so, uh, to me, that, 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 that's a harder heart that we see in chapter 16 than we saw in chapter 8 and 9 with the trumpets. Uh, the trumpets are partial. That's one of the major differences. They affect a third, and the bowls are complete. They seem to affect all. And I'm wondering, again, in the difference, don't think about it necessarily in terms of slices of the earth, 
But think about the difference between a warning and we'll just call it a punishment or a final judgment. And I'm wondering if the difference is in the responsiveness of the people. I wonder if, so you have these inhabitants of the earth. Those are people who are hostile to God. And they, and, and whatever this trumpet blast is, that plague, that judgment lands on them. For some of them, they harden their heart and they, they move farther and farther away from Jesus and closer and closer to the dragon. And so for them, that trumpet that, that, that maybe ideally was, was a warning intended to bring them to repentance winds up just leading to a hardening of their heart. Again, you can think about Pharaoh and the plagues, these wonders that God worked through Moses that were intended to get Pharaoh to, to let the Israelite people go. And he, he never did. He continued to harden his heart. The story may have been different if Pharaoh had responded differently, if he had truly repented, if he truly recognized there's a God and it's not me. And if he wants these people to go free, even though I'm going to lose all of this labor, it's the best thing because he's more powerful than I am. He never got there. But I wonder, do trumpets become bowls when people don't repent? But if they do repent, then maybe the, 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 then it, it only remains a warning judgment. If the bowls are the wrath of God, and this is how we're going to close, uh, it is Palm Sunday. <laughs> this may not have you thinking this has nothing to do with Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem, but it actually does. The reason Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago was so that nobody has to experience Revelation 16. That's the connection. Nobody has to experience Revelation 16 because Jesus experienced Revelation 16 on our behalf. The wrath of God is his righteous anger poured out on sin. And Jesus said, I'll take that punishment on me so you never have to take it on yourself. And I wonder if those, whatever those warning judgments are, if hearts are responsive, if in those moments, rather than cursing God, if people would repent, they never have to experience Revelation 16. The trumpet never becomes a bowl because we've been saved from the wrath of God. All who've put their faith and their trust in Jesus, that's what we're saved from. We're saved from the wrath of God. First Thessalonians 5 says, we're not appointed for wrath, but for salvation in Jesus. So Palm Sunday reminds us that this is it. Here we have the, on the cross as we're moving towards Good Friday, we see the justice of God displayed. Wickedness is dealt with. And we see the love and the mercy of God that we don't get what we deserve. We don't have to experience the justice of God in my own life. I don't get what I deserve. I don't have to pay for the sins that I've committed because of the grace and the mercy and the love of God, Jesus does that for me. And so then I can receive his righteousness. So as we take communion, this is a, a very tangible reminder of what Jesus has done on our behalf. When you think about Revelation 16, and it can be disturbing, let communion, whatever you're using for bread and whatever you're using uh, to represent the blood of Jesus, whatever those things are in your house, let that, that tangible, physical substance, let that remind you 
You've been given an opportunity to be saved from Revelation 16, from the wrath of God. His anger towards sin is righteous. It's 100% justified. And it can absolutely be avoided by us. Not because God winks at sin, but because he chose to bear the penalty that we deserve. That's mercy and that's grace. In Revelation 16, can be, it, can, it can give us some heartburn. Recognize that a God who doesn't judge evil ultimately is not good. He's not. Think about the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6. Who's standing up for those guys? Jesus does at just the right time. At just the right time. You may be in a spot spiritually where, honestly, you're at risk. You're at risk of what we read about in Revelation 16. And there may be a part of you that's kind of going, I don't deserve that. I've never done anything that bad. And that's what we grade on a scale. We tend to look at our good and our bad, and we think of someone like Hitler, and we say, I'm not as bad as him, and so I'm okay. The standard for us is Jesus. He's the standard of righteousness. It's not about how bad you are compared to other people. It's do you, do, you, do you measure up to him in terms of righteousness? And if you're honest with, your, with yourself, you know the answer is no, you don't. And no, neither do I, and neither is anybody else. Not your mom, not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, nobody does. That's why we all need a savior, because none of us measure up. We've all fallen short. We all deserve the wrath of God. But because he loves us, he put his son on a donkey 2,000 years ago to ride in as a king, celebrated on Sunday, to die as a criminal and a heretic on Friday, to be resurrected the next Sunday as the Savior of the world. Let's pray. It's the only thing I want you to take away. Again, 16 is kind of messy for us. And again, it doesn't necessarily hit where we live. I said at the beginning, and it probably got lost. We're living in this time of mercy. We're living in this time where God is extending patience to all. The wrath is being stored up. Romans 2.5 says that. It's being stored up and those, those bowls are holding his wrath. 100%. And it will be poured out at some point, but that's not, that's not today. We live in a time of mercy. And I want to encourage you as you think about communion to cry out for mercy. If mercy is God withholding from us the punishment that we justly deserve. Or maybe you can just take out that word punishment. If mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve, what our actions deserve. Where do you need mercy this morning?
Paul says in Galatians that we reap what we sow. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That could be a scary thought when we think about some of the things that we've sown. Mercy can break that cycle. I would encourage you to ask the Lord in your own heart right now. You may not even be aware. God, where do I need your mercy? For some of you, it's in your thought life. You're chasing all kinds of rabbits. You're running through all kinds of doomsday scenarios. You need mercy. For some of you, it's relationships within your home are getting strained. What was once felt like, hey, this is a great little kind of break from reality. Now it's a drain and a strain. You need mercy in your relationships. For some of you, it's with your job or your finances. For some of you, it's with your health. In none of these areas do we want God to treat us based on what we deserve. In all of these areas, what we want is mercy. His goodness to flow into these areas of our life and communion reminds us that he's always ready to do that. So again, I don't want you to get hung up on the details of chapter 16 at all. It's not going to be helpful for you in terms of how you're living your life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. What's going to be helpful is to remember that God is just 100%. And His justice will be done at just the right time. He's going to step in. There are Christians who are living in places of persecution right now and that time for them is probably closer than it is for us. Their situation is such that their cry for justice is, it's, it's, it carries, a, there's a different weight to it. That's not necessarily where we are. But we know that he's just and at just the right time that justice will be expressed. But if you're following Jesus, What you're going to get to experience is his mercy and his grace. And let communion remind you of that. So God, that's my prayer for each one of us, children and students and adults, that every one of us would remember that Jesus prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That as we take communion, we'd be reminded of the sacrifice that you made to deliver us from your righteous anger poured out on our sin and in exchange for that we get to call you father and you call us son and daughter I pray that that reality would take root deep in our hearts and we would live out of that place uh, this week in Jesus name All right, you guys take bread whatever you're using this represents the body of Jesus broken for you You can go ahead and eat that. We have some guys here who are going to come and take communion as well. Would you do that in your home?
And then whatever you're using to represent the blood of Jesus, take that and drink it. The blood of Jesus poured out for you for, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what delivers you from the wrath of God. Brief prayer, and then we'll be done. God seal. I pray that uh, you would seal the work in each one of our hearts that you've done for us. That we would all live in the freedom and the joy and the peace and the hope that comes from knowing we've been saved. We've been delivered. Regardless of what tomorrow holds, our long-term future is super bright because you've adopted us into your family. You've delivered us from your wrath. And you've placed within us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys have a great uh, rest of your week. Hopefully we'll see you or you'll see us on Friday at the Good Friday service.